to the series that we were teaching that I was teaching before we left on uh, for a couple of weeks on vacation. I didn't get all the things out. It, it doesn't seem that, um, uh, that the Lord wanted me to say. So we were talking about divine guidance, being led by the Holy Ghost. We used a couple of text scriptures. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now you know as well as I do that, uh, that the word candle there literally means lamp. And it talks about in the, in the days that these were written, we know that that was their only source of light or illumination. They would have these little oil lamps or something similar to that. And, uh, and that would be the only light that would um, provide, that was the only source of light that would provide for people during the nighttime and, uh, and so forth. It's telling us that God will illuminate us by our spirits. And you know as well as I do that if you're walking around in the dark, it's a whole lot easier to have a light a whole lot easier not to stumble if you have a light that shows you the way. And so the Bible is making the point that it's the spirit of man that God uses to lead us and guide us, to reveal himself to us and to illuminate our way. We know that the Bible tells us that man is three parts. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writing to the church said, I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here, if you put those two verses together, it tells us that God doesn't lead us by our bodies or by physical circumstance or by opening or closing doors or any of that kind of stuff that some people oftentimes pray for. He doesn't lead us through our minds, our intellect, the soulish part of man. He only leads us by our spirits, that which has been made in the image and the likeness of God. Now, in Romans chapter 4, another text scripture we looked at, two verses, verse 14 and verse 16. It says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Every child of God has a right, I believe a responsibility, to be led by the Holy Ghost. And God will lead us by our spirits through the Holy Ghost who indwells us. Verse 16 tells us how he's going to do that. It says, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits, not our bodies, not our circumstances, not our minds, but he bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. I believe that's talking about and and, uh, referring to the realities that the Bible gives to us, the revelation that the Bible brings to us about who we are in Christ. He's going to lead us into the wonderful things that are revealed unto us in the Pauline revelation. That's where the Holy Ghost is going to lead us. First and foremost, into the Word of God to show us who we are in Christ. Now, there will be personal leadings and individual things that God will say to you and to me, depending on what His plan and purpose for our lives uh, would really be and the different parts of uh, our lives that He wants to and plans to lead us in. But where the Bible says that man is spirit, soul, and body, We know a lot about uh, exercising the body. Billion-dollar industries are made on exercising the body and doing things for your flesh. We know a lot about the education of the soul, which is the mind, the will, and the emotions. Education is all about the developing of soulish things. But where do we learn about being educated or developed in spirit? Now, if God doesn't lead us through our circumstances or through our bodies, even as Paul said writing to Timothy, bodily exercise profits little 
Literally, that means prophets for a little time. There's a period of time that bodily exercise will be good for us. But godliness, spiritual development, godliness is profitable unto all things. Well, where do we learn that from? If not from the Word, there is no other source. Hebrews 4.12 says the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit is the Word of God. Now, we know that the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God, after having made everything on the earth, comes to the place where it's prepared and ready for man to be made or created. And God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion here over the earth, over all the work of our hands. Man was created for one purpose. It's a religious thing to say that God wanted companionship. He wanted fellowship. He was lonely, so he made man. But folks, if God was lonely, God's not God. If God needs you to complete him, then he's in a sad state of affairs. God didn't make us because he was lonely or wanted fellowship with us. Fellowship with us is a bonus, or really our fellowship with him is a bonus. But God created, the earth, uh, created man, male and female. He created man to have authority, to rule over this place that he just made. And he delivered that authority into Adam. Now, if man was made in the likeness and image of God, Jesus said in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well of, uh, well of Samaria, he said, God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if, God's made unto, uh, if man is made in the image and likeness of God, then that means since God is a spirit, man has to be a spirit being too. And, he, and spirits are eternal. When the Bible talks about death, it rarely is speaking about the cessation or the ending of life. Very rarely. Sometimes when physical death is spoken of, those, uh, uh, you can see that that is the meaning of those scriptures. But most of the time it's talking about death in a spiritual sense or a spiritual context. Separation from God is spiritual death. Grave. We don't know anything about his burial. There must have been a pauper's grave or some kind of thing that was set up for, for people in his condition or in his state of affairs. But notice the real him, the man on the inside, that which made it, uh, Lazarus Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, physical death too, and was buried. And in hell he, talking about the rich man, lift up his eyes being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and, received, and likewise Lazarus received evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Now I want you to notice the rich man and Lazarus, their bodies both died. The Bible tells us about the rich man's burial. It doesn't tell us about the, uh, the poor man, Lazarus' burial. So apparently there was a, uh, a funeral service for the rich man, but not for Lazarus. But notice that the rich man has all of his faculties in, at work and present with him, even though his body's dead. He's able to think. He's able to recognize. He sees Lazarus, and he knows who he is. People sometimes ask the question, are we going to know each other in heaven? Well, if you know each other here, you're going to know each other there. Nothing has changed as far as the intellect of Lazarus, of uh, the rich man is concerned. And we see that he still suffers torment. We see that even though it's, his body is laid in the ground, it's not physical torment. I'm not sure I'm qualified to say what kind of torment it is. But one thing that's identified very specifically is that the rich man's emotions are still in place and intact and operational. He has compassion for his brothers. All of a sudden, whatever was important to him on this earth is not important anymore. What's important to him is that other people don't come to this place of torment. Abraham answers him in his request. And he says, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received evil things. He's telling him that the pl- your time here on earth is the only time that there is for you the only available opportunity for you and me to make a decision for eternity. He's saying it's too late to change things now. And besides all this, there's a great gulf fixed. Doesn't tell us anything about Lazarus being able to look over into hell. But it does tell us about the rich man being able to look over into heaven or Abraham's bosom, the best that they could have at that time. So his faculties are still in play. His faculties are still operational. His spirit and his soul, his mind, his will, and his emotions are still present. The only thing that's changed is his location. And folks, eternal life is all about location, location, location. Because spirits don't die. Spirits never die. Look with me over to uh, Mark chapter 9. I want you to see something else in this regard. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start in chapter 8 a little bit to create a context for the things that uh, Jesus is going to say in the next chapter. Let me start in verse um, Mark chapter 8 verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples unto the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say you're Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. And he said unto them, but who do you say that I am? Folks, that's the real question for everybody on the earth. Who do you say he is? Other people may say different things, but who do you say he is? And it's interesting to add here at this point that the the very thing that makes you or brings you into a child of God or brings you into God's family is what you say about Jesus. Paul wrote to the church in Romans chapter 10, and he said, if you'll confess Jesus as your Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. In other words, if you say that Jesus is Lord. So here's the question he poses to Peter, who do you say I am? 
Well, Jesus, Peter answers unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Notice verse 31. It said, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And that's when Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. I want you to see something, folks. I want you to see that these guys that have been with Jesus for three years, this is right at the end of his ministry, these guys that have been with Jesus for three years have not been going out and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. How stupid would it be for Jesus to say, who do you say I am? If he's been telling them to go preach in towns that he sent them to, that he was the Christ. Why would Peter not say, well, we say that you're who you told us you were? But Jesus didn't tell him that. Matthew's account of this says that Jesus answered when Peter said, Thou art the Christ. Jesus answered and said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Well, if flesh and blood has not revealed it, that means Jesus hadn't revealed it to him. He's flesh and blood, isn't he? So Jesus has not been telling them that, they're, that he's the Messiah. He let them make that determination and realization, come to that realization for themselves. Now with that context in mind, look at chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 2. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he wist not, he didn't know what to say, for they were sore afraid. Folks, a good rule of thumb is when you're afraid, don't say anything. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save or except Jesus, only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Now remember, he's been plainly teaching them that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and raised again from the dead. We saw that in the previous chapter, right? And they kept the saying with themselves and questioning one another what the rising from the dead should mean. You remember when Jesus does come back to the earth, is resurrected, he upbraids them for their hardness of heart. He comes to the disciples and they were frightened. They were frightened by the first appearance. And he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And it says that he, one account, my, uh, Luke's account, I believe it is, said that he upbraided them for their hardness of heart. Now, where was their hardness of heart? These guys are his disciples. What is the hardness of heart? They didn't believe what he told them about the resurrection. Now, keep that in mind. I want you to hold that thought for a minute. But let me make another point about this. At the transfiguration on the mountain when Jesus is transfigured, they saw him in his glory. I'm not exactly sure what happened there, 
but it is, a, a, is as if Jesus appeared in a pre, preview of his glory, perhaps. And Moses and Elijah show up too. Now Moses and Elijah have been gone for thousands of years. Where have they been? Where have they been? We won't take time to look at it, but there's a story in the Old Testament about how that Saul, after he had disobeyed God and the, uh, the anointing to be the king had left him and was transferred over to David. You remember all the, the um, efforts that Saul made to kill David, knowing that the hand of God was on David now, not him anymore. It tells us about one instance where after Samuel had died, Samuel was the prophet in Saul's day, how that when Samuel, after Samuel had died, he went to the witch of Endor and he asked her to bring Samuel up from the dead. Well, Samuel shows up and the witch freaks out. Now, if she's used to bringing people back from the dead, there's nothing for her to freak out about. But here all the time that she's conning people out of money, pretending to do certain things, here's the real deal. And she heads for the hills. She knows this is not a normal occurrence. So obviously God intervened and brought Samuel, who had been dead for some years. Well, where's he been? He didn't cease to exist. If he had ceased to exist, he wouldn't have shown up when God intervened. And so Samuel tells Saul about certain things, about how he's going to die, and the kingdom's going to be ripped from his hands and from his family and so forth. Folks, my point is simply this. Spirits never die. Whether they go to hell, or in the Old Testament application, whether they went to Abraham's bosom. Now for us, it's not Abraham's bosom. The Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he led captivity captive. He took Abraham's bosom and the people that were there, that which is also called paradise. We know that one of the, the thieves that was crucified with Jesus is there in paradise too. And Jesus took that crowd with him to heaven. Now the Bible says that God does nothing except he shows his prophets first. These are the two foremost prophets of the old covenant, Elijah and Moses. So when he speaks to them of his demise, of his impending death. The only thing that makes sense and fits the truth of the word is that he's telling Moses and Elijah to go preach to everybody else saying it won't be long now to get everybody ready. So spirits don't die. Spirits are eternal because we're made in the image and the likeness of God. Spirits are eternal. Now, folks, I want you to turn with me to another scripture. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 5. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come into which there will not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're trying to show Jesus how beautiful the temple is. 
I don't know if they think he can't see or what their purpose was behind that. But Jesus kind of thumbs his nose at it. He says, this is nothing. The reason it's nothing is because it was built by Herod. It wasn't built as a temple to glorify God. It was Herod's temple. It wasn't God's temple. So he says, the days are coming. We know this happened in A.D. 70, where not one stone would be left upon another. The reason for that is because when Herod built the temple, he ground up gold and made it a part of the mortar between the the bricks and the stones. So when the Romans came in, in 70 A.D., laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem fell, they took each stone off the other one to get to the gold dust that was a part of the mortar. They separated the mortar, the elements of the mortar, and got a hold of the gold that was in there. That was a very specific thing that Jesus said about what would happen to the temple that nobody could know other than somebody that saw the future. You see that, don't you? So they asked him, saying, Master, when shall these things be? And what shall... And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And Jesus answers. He's talking about the end time stuff. And he answered and said, take heed that you be not deceived. First thing Jesus said about the last days was deception. Now deception can take any number of forms. People can be deceived about God. But even after they find God, they can be deceived about the truth of the word. There's literally no end to what deception can mean or how deception can be manifested. So he said, take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And the time draweth near, go ye not therefore after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then he said unto them, nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. I want to come back to that in a minute and explain that a little bit further. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. He's talking about tribulation activities. He's not talking about the church. He's not talking about the church age. Now he will in a minute. But he's not talking about the church age. He's talking about what the Bible reveals to us. John's revelation, what we know of as the book of Revelation. He's telling us about what John identifies that will deal specifically and primarily with Israel. Verse 12, but all these, before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is the church age. Now he's talking about their lifetime. He's not talking about the end. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts. Notice that that phrase, settle it therefore in your hearts. He's saying make your decision now. Don't wait till somebody comes and takes take you prisoner. Make the determination now. Settle it once and for all how it's going to be for you. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate for what you shall answer, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you that shall cause to be put to death. 
and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not one hair of your head perish. Notice verse 19. In your patience possess you your souls. Now I hope I don't do you a disservice by skipping over some of the foundation scriptures that we've looked at before. So let me refer to a couple of them. You can turn there if you want, but it's not necessary if you don't want to. Paul writes to the Romans in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that, which is your spiritual worship. Remember we referred before to John 4, 24, where Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Worshiping God in spirit as the Bible identifies, is about presenting your body a living sacrifice. It's about doing something with your body. Then he goes further in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, or literally experience, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice what you think, what you do with your mind, has everything to do with the measure See that? Well, here where Jesus says, in your patience possess you your souls. He's talking about the operation of the mind. He's talking about here's how you are able or will be able to possess your souls, to keep your head from going haywire. James said it this way, James 1.21. James said, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, let me make a couple of points here. I'm not sure if we need to go to these scriptures and look at them or not, or maybe you're familiar with them enough already. But the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. One translation says a new species of being. Well, what new species of being is that? The new birth makes us God-men. It makes us a new spirit, and then God puts his spirit And then God puts his spirit in us. And from God's perspective, or maybe let's say it this way, positionally, we become God-men. Now, in practical experience, that may never occur for you or me. But positionally, we're God-men. Old things are passed away, meaning old things, spiritual things are passed away. The old man has passed away. Behold, all things become new. The Bible says, as God raised Jesus to his right hand, so did he raise you. And you're seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, positionally. Now, whether you ever live up to that or not, it's your choice. So when Jesus says to them, settle it in your hearts, he's saying you're going to have to make the determination for, your own, for yourself, on your own. So what does that tell us? That tells us the new birth does not affect the body of man. The new birth does not affect the soul of man, the mind, the will, or the emotions of man. That's something that's left for us to do for ourselves. God made you the caretaker of your body. He made you responsible for the care of your souls. So what you do or don't do depends is the, the only determining factor for what level or what measure of God's perfect will you're going to walk in or experience in your life. Are you with me? Now, we know this has to be true because writing to the Ephesians, 
Paul who just said that they've been raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places tells them to put away lying. Isn't it sad you'd have to tell Christians to quit lying? He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the world, not talking to the unsaved. He wrote to the Galatians who positionally have been seated with Christ in heavenly places just like the rest of us. And he tells them, walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then he goes through a big long list of what fleshly activities are. Adultery, fornication, lying, lasciviousness, and so on and so forth. So positionally, they've been seated with Christ. But as far as the practical life, practical application of the power of God in their lives, they seem to be falling short. Do you understand what I'm saying? So positionally, in reality, we've been made God-men. But as Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians, he said they're walking as mere men. In other words, even though they've been made a new creature, even though they've been made God-men through the new birth, they're walking like they're still natural unsaved men. So folks, there's a big difference between who we are positionally and who we are in practical application. Now, the devil wants to beat you up because the practical application side falls short. And he doesn't want you to understand or realize that you've been made a God-man. But according to the scripture, receiving with meekness the engrafted word, the truth of the word of God, about the fact that we've been made God-men, is that that as we meditate on the word and hold fast to the word and confess it for ourselves to ourselves, for ourselves, we come to the place where in reality, physical reality, we can walk as God men. So where Jesus says to the disciples, in your patience, possess your souls. Patience is a word that means long-suffering. It means endurance. But it means more than that. See, a lot of things we endure because we don't have any choice. We have to put up with certain things on, on this earth not because it's the way we want them to be, but because we can't change it. We may be believing for it to change. We may be praying for it to change. But it is what it is for the time being. Right? This word means more than that. It means a constancy. It means being held straight, specifically ground and founded in the truth of the word. While you're having to endure. In application, it looks like what James talked about, counting it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or hardships. That's what this verse is speaking to. In your patience, possess your souls. Well, what's going to hold us steady? What is it that's going to hold us steady and make sure or enable us to be in the place that God wants us to be? I want you to look with me to a couple of scriptures. First of all, I want you to look with me to Colossians chapter 3. I'll start reading verse, uh, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. 
Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, here you can see that he's talking about in practical application. He's talking about letting your position in Christ, the reality of the fact, the truth, that we've been raised with Christ and we're seated at God's right hand in heavenly places. He's saying, let that affect you in such a way that you live up to who you've been made in by Christ Jesus and by his precious blood. Then notice the next thing he says. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Notice he says that it's our choice. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Can you see that? It's a choice. It's the same choice, different words, but the same choice as to whether or not we're going to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual worship or means of worshiping in spirit. It's our choice whether or not we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to the Word of God and experience God's plan and purpose for our lives. So he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which we, you are called, also you are called, in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It's a choice. It's a choice. We have a choice to let the word of God dominate us one translation says and really the word is uh, the word that's used here in the greek means to let the word of god be the umpire in your life let the word of god be the deciding factor whether you go to the right hand or to the left whether you operate as a child of god or just like everybody else in the world it says let the word of god be the umpire let it be the deciding factor And let the peace of God rule in your life. Turn with me over to Philippians now, chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Other translations say don't worry or fret or have any anxiety about anything. And the peace of God which passes all understanding. Notice this. Shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally brethren whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise. Think. Everybody say think. Think on these things. The Bible instructs us to renew our minds, not remove our minds. It's the renewing of the mind that will bring you into the peace of God. Isaiah 26, 3 says, For thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Now let me make this connection. I want to make sure that I get this across. At least mention it. 
And that is, your thought life has everything to do with faith. Let me refer to Isaiah 26.3 again. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, who thinks the right things, in other words. Who thinks in line with what God's word says, because he trusts in thee. Folks, your thought life has everything to do with your faith. Everything. Can you see that? Paul says the same thing here. He says, don't be anxious or fretful about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your... uh, You know the rest of it. (laughs) I had a block. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And notice verse 7, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's not going to work unless you act on verse 8. That's not going to result unless you act on verse 8. And think on things that are good and just and lovely and pure and of good report, things that have virtue and things that have praise. I don't know of anything in uh, any one thing in this world that fits all of those or meets all of those qualifying factors except the Word of God. Now, do you see that verse 7 in the peace of God that passes understanding shall keep in your hearts? Shall keep your hearts. That word keep means to mount guard. One translation says it this way. The peace of God shall be like a mighty force or army rushing in in a turbulent country to protect you. I like that. Now, folks, we've had an interesting couple of weeks here. with the things that are going on in our nation. Did you notice, I told you I was going to come back to Luke chapter 21, where it says Jesus is talking about the end times. It tells us about things that he refers to. He says, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The word nation there is the word ethnos. It means ethnic groups will rise up against ethnic groups. You look at most of the wars that are taking place in the earth today, and we don't hear a lot about them, but there are some terrible things happening on the African continent have been happening for a long time. Every war that's taking place on the earth today is a war between different ethnic groups. Not countries. Ethnic groups within a country. The next thing he says is kingdom shall rise against kingdom. The word kingdom means rule. And by implication, rulers. Folks, that can be political parties too. Now, as I said, we've had a, a couple, an interesting couple of weeks with the things that have been going on with the Senate confirmation of the Supreme Court nominee. Now, folks, if you've been around here any length of time and listened to me for any period of time whatsoever, you know that I'm not looking for politics to save America. Trump is not my savior. He's not the savior for the nation either. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate all the good things that he's doing. But I am totally convinced that God's not a Republican. (laughs) I am also convinced that Satan is definitely a Democrat. (laughs) 
Now, you may be thinking I'm just going for the joke, going for the laugh, but I mean that sincerely. The tactics are his. I appreciate President Trump for all that he's doing. I appreciate the things that he wants to do, that he seems to be held back from doing by others in his own party. I have no doubt that those are things that have already been beneficial to our nation and will continue to do so or be so. But when all this stuff started happening, well, let me, let me make this comment too. I cringe at some things that President Trump says. But in fairness to him, the few times that I've gone back and listened to myself on tape preaching previous messages, I cringe at that too. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. I hear myself sometimes on tape or whatever media form, and I think, why did I say it like that? Why didn't I say this instead? Folks, after the sermon's over, I know exactly what I should have done. I'm not always so clear while it's going on. But the things that have happened over the last couple of weeks, particularly this last week, have been astonishing. I mean, things that nobody, nobody could have ever predicted 20 years ago unless they had revelation from God. And two things have stood out to me in this, uh, these events. The one is the level of hatred that's at work in our country at the highest levels of govern government in our country. The second thing that's impressed me is the awful judgments that some people are going to face. I know that it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get angry. I've spent some time angry over the last couple of weeks myself. And it's real easy to do. It's real easy to get angry and want justice or retribution for the people that are so willingly, casually, willing to destroy a man's life. But then the compassion of God, the love of God rises up on the inside of me. And in my mind's eye, I can see these people standing before God. I want you to look with me at some things that Paul told Timothy. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Notice the Bible says that, that there's going to be those that depart from the faith. Now, here's a question I've got from you. Why did he mention that when that was also going on in Paul's time? Paul talked about people that had left, not just the church, but left ministry. 
He talked about people that were part of his ministry company that had gone back into the world. If Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, and I believe that he is, he was well aware of the conditions that when satisfied, someone could lose their salvation. He identified certain people that had met those conditions and had forfeited their salvation too. So if these things were happening in Paul's day, why does he talk about the Holy Ghost talking about it happening in our day? Is it just just going to be more people leaving? Or is it going to be a more organized and concerted effort by the devil against the church of God? I don't know. I want you to look with me now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Pay attention to this. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now the word perilous means dangerous, but another meaning of the word perilous is strength reducing. Strength reducing. He's saying there are going to be times, things that happen in the last days that are designed to rob you of strength. And I see some of this happening, uh, or I see it happening on some scale. So often in our present day. Here's what I mean by that. The way the news is presented can change the truth into a lie. And can make a lie the truth. Or at least be presented that way. And it was interesting to watch so many people in these confirmation hearings after she had her say and they took a break. It was like the world had come to an end. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? Then when Justice Kavanaugh had his say, some of the same people came back around and said, well, okay, now it's not so bad. But folks, you need to realize the devil knows how to create influence upon mankind and create influence upon this earth to rob you of strength if you let it. But if you will maintain and do what the Bible says about letting the peace of God rule and reign in your hearts, you're not going to be moved by this stuff. Let's finish reading what what Paul said to Timothy. This know also that in the last times, perilous, last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Notice that these are the primary characteristics, and I'm sure Paul didn't list all the things that people would be or all the things that people would do at the end. I don't know how you would write all that down. But notice some of the things that he identifies. He identifies People into themselves. Folks, if that's not social media, I don't know what is. I'm smart enough to know that not everybody cares. Nobody cares what I have for breakfast. 
But what has infected our people in these last days? What has infected the country in such a way that, that every move that we make, we think somebody wants to know about? There's an advertisement that uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere except at the movie theater. And I don't go to a lot of movies, but I've been to a couple over the last year or so and, uh, and have seen this, this ad. And it's a Coke or Coke Zero or something, something Coca-Cola company ad. And it, the first time I saw it, it made me so angry. And I couldn't figure out why. And every time I've seen it since, it makes me angry. Now, I don't know if you're going to realize what the ad is, and it really doesn't matter too much, but let me just hit the high spots, and that is there's this girl that comes from a convenience store after getting her brand of Coke or whatever it is, and as she's walking down the street, she's looking into the camera saying, whatever is you, just be you. If you want to run a marathon, which sounds incredibly difficult, just be you. And if you feel like having a Coke, get a Coke. Because it's all about you just being you. And that, every time I've seen that, that just infuriates me. And I, I, had, to, I had to realize or examine what was going on. Folks, I don't care anything about the ad. I don't care anything about Coca-Cola. I don't care what they advertise. What is there to get mad about? I realized it was a spiritual thing. I realized that it's the spirit of this world in this time that we live in where it's all about you. And folks, with only one small exception, nothing is about you. <laughs> Thank you. Let me read some more of these. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers. That's why I know the devil's a Democrat. Incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors. We've got people at the highest levels of government acknowledging that they've committed felonious acts with classified information, and nobody does anything. I read, I don't maybe it was last night, yesterday sometime, I don't think it was today, but I read where President Trump is calling for the FBI to do a seven-day investigation concerning the Supreme Court Justice nomination. Why is nobody calling for the FBI to dig deeper into the email stuff. The release of classified information. Folks, that's treason. By definition, it's treason. I'm not, I'm not going for a hand clap. I'm not trying to make you like me or like my politics. I've got a real question here. Why is it okay for certain people to engage in treasonous activity and not be held accountable for it? Why is that? Well, the answer is very simple, and that is all people are not treated equally under the law. You try to do something like that, and they'll throw you away forever. This is part of the last day stuff. Traitors, 
heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captives, silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, folks, if you look at that, you can see the education system. You can see the way that certain elements of our government are using, in my opinion, misusing women concerning their experiences. I think that's exactly what we saw in this confirmation hearing. Now, why did Paul tell us these things? Why did the Holy Ghost impress upon him to say these things? You can't tell me that this is the only time when those things have occurred. As I said before, some of this very same stuff was happening in Paul's day. So why tell us? Folks, there's no reason to tell us unless it's to prepare us. And in my opinion, this is not the word of the Lord unto you. But in my opinion, it's only going to get worse. That doesn't mean it works. But it's only going to get worse. I know of people that are diametrically opposed to my politics that are just as saved as I am. I don't understand how that could be. Because I can say with certainty, I can say backing it up with the truth of the word that I judge things no matter what political party is doing them I judge things based on what the word says you know what this Supreme Court nomination is all about don't you it's about Roe versus Wade and there are people in this country we shouldn't be surprised But there are people in this country that are willing to destroy anybody and everybody to protect their right to murder unborn babies. The definition of murder is the shedding of innocent blood. You can't get more innocent blood than an unborn baby. So if this is about abortion, if this is about preserving a legal right to abortion, who does this come down to? It comes down to the church. Not every Christian, don't misunderstand me, not every Christian is pro-life. I don't understand that either. But for some it may be ignorance. For others it may be just learning and conditioning from the educational system. But it's not the unsaved that want to do away with Roe versus Wade. The only ones in this country that want to do away with Roe versus Wade are Christians that have a moral objection to the law based on the word. It's not the unsaved that are trying to overturn it. It's a segment of the church. So again, it's not against women. It's not about women. It's not about believing women. Folks, I don't believe anybody, male or female, should just automatically, uh, automatically be believed when they say something. I know too many people, male and female, that lie. So this notion 
that we've got to believe anybody and everybody because of the accusation. That's the work of the devil. But this is about the church. The purpose of this thing, the underlying target is the church. So what are we to do? The Bible talks about the peace of God that passes understanding is given to us to keep our hearts in our minds. We're going to have to learn. And I think it's more important in our day than ever before. We're going to have to learn how not to be moved no matter what we hear. We're going to have to learn not to be moved by whatever political activity or action takes place, whether we're for it or against it. We're going to have to learn to not be moved. We can't get caught up in this thing where I hate you because you're against my politics. Because we're all going to have to stand before the Lord. And there are some people that have got some terrible, terrible things to answer for. We shouldn't even take comfort or rejoice in that. Because just like the rich man's priorities changed instantly when he found himself in hell. None of the political stuff is going to matter when we stand before the Lord. I believe we've got a, a greater responsibility to pray for our nation, to pray for people now than ever before. Now, granted, your prayers for some people are going to do no good whatsoever. I've got a scriptural, biblical precedent for that. God told his prophet, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. He told the prophet not to pray for Ephraim anymore. But the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Yeah, but there comes a point where God sees that nobody, somebody may not change their heart. If that's the case, what purpose would there be in wasting prayers on one instance or a situation when you could be effective in prayer in some other? Folks, God really does see what's going on. And he wants us to as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he receive them, for they are foolishness unto him. But we who are spiritual should judge all things. Now the natural man certainly in, uh, includes the unsaved, but would it not also include those that Paul was writing to in Corinth, complaining that they were walking as mere men? That'd be a natural man too then, wouldn't it? Not positionally. Positionally, they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and raised to the right hand of God, seated with Christ in heavenly places. But practically, some people aren't going to change no matter what. So I believe just as it's our greater responsibility today than ever before to pray, it's also a greater responsibility than ever before to pray specifically and be led by the Holy Ghost in our prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's the foundation for our lives. It's a sure foundation because heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail.
We thank you, Father, that your word never changes just like you never change. We thank you that heaven and earth will pass away before one smallest part of your word will fail. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God that holds us steady. The word of God that when we focus our attention on, our minds, and confess from our hearts, becomes a sure foundation for us. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom of the Holy Ghost that Jesus has been made to us. Teach us, Lord. Holy Spirit, guide us into truth. Guide us into the truth of our prayer lives and what our prayer lives should be. Guide us into the truth of trusting our Heavenly Father by trusting His Word. We ask you for these things, knowing it's the will of God, the will of the Father. And so we know we have your help and your guidance. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, don't forget, we've got the baptism that'll start in just a few minutes. If you want to come be a witness and a party to those who are being baptized in water today, we invite you to do so.